Amen. Let's continue in prayer together. Lord, thank you for what we could just sing. Thank you for that prayer that we could offer up. That is our desire. And God, if it's not, please change it to make it our desire. That we would not hope in ourselves, that we would not trust in our wisdom, but that truly in Christ and in Christ alone, we would find our hope, our joy, our strength, our life. God, help us in this time of worship now as we study your word. Help us to see and to know what it means to fix our eyes upon Jesus, to abide in Christ. God, protect us, guard us from trusting in ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated and open your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 3. And this morning we come to the last letter to the last of these seven letters, this letter to Laodicea, uh, written to these seven churches. And this is, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood, poorly interpreted passages in the entire Bible. Now, why is this the case? Why are these verses so misunderstood and so poorly interpreted? I think it's because, hear me out, well-meaning pastors, well-meaning, well-meaning pastors, well-meaning commentators are too eager to assign meanings and definitions to words that would have been totally foreign to the original audience. We are too eager at times to assign our preferred understanding to a text, our preferred cultural definitions to phrases and to words that really defy the overall context of the passage. Again, we don't do it intentionally. There's no malicious motive at work. But we hear words like hot, cold, lukewarm. We read about Jesus standing at a door and knocking and we're like, I know what all this means. I I already know what it means. Hot means good. Hot means spiritually alive. Cold means bad. Cold means spiritually dead. Lukewarm means somewhere kind of in the middle. You're kind of interested in spiritual things, but not really. And there stands poor angry, lonely, disappointed Jesus outside in the cold, continually knocking on the door of your heart. And let me tell you something, he will not knock forever. If you do not get up and answer the door, he will eventually spit you and vomit you out of his mouth. He has had it with you, so you had best go answer the door. Is that what this text is teaching us? Is that the point and the principle and the overall message that we're supposed to walk away from when we read this letter to Laodicea? Brothers and sisters, in reality, I think this letter is far richer and more profound than we give it credit for. I I think this letter, listen, is much more serious than than how we usually treat it. And I think, believe it or not, and oh, I, I pray I can convince you of, of this this morning, I think this letter proclaims a much better news than we understand. 
good news, really good news. I, I think this letter communicates to us a primary essential principle that we cannot safely ignore if we care about our joy and our satisfaction in Christ. Your joy is at stake this morning in this text as we read Jesus' words to this church at Laodicea. And so I say all of that to say this. We want to be careful this morning to let the text speak for itself. We want to look at the whole letter and we want to allow Jesus to speak for himself. We want to allow Jesus to define his terms in his way, using his illustrations to give to his church whatever message he thinks is so important that he needs to communicate. And so... With this as our goal, we want to ask and answer five questions this morning. Here they are. Question number one, what is unique about the culture and history of Laodicea that sheds light on this text? Question number two, why does Jesus introduce himself as he does in verse 14? Why? Why this description to this church at this time? Question number three, according to Jesus' words in verse 17, and oh, how I cannot stress this enough, brothers and sisters, according to Jesus' words in verse 17, what does it mean to be lukewarm? Question number four, what incredibly ironic counsel does Jesus give to this church? And then lastly, question number five, what's the deal with the door and the knocking and the meal and the throne? And what we'll see throughout the questions and answers that we'll explore this morning, we will see continually, I I pray, I, I, I hope, we will see our true need, we will see his gracious call, his gracious invitation, and we will see the supreme joy of unending, glory-filled fellowship with Jesus Christ. So, question number one. What is unique about the culture and history of Laodicea that sheds light on this text? As you can see from the map uh, that should be up on, on the screens, Laodicea was east of Ephesus, by about a hundred miles. Okay, so east of Ephesus. That was the first letter that we talked about and, and, and looked at many weeks ago. It was southeast of Philadelphia, the letter that we considered last week, by about 43 miles. But as you can see from the map, Laodicea is incredibly close to Hierapolis and Lowerapolis. Get it? Oh, listen, you know, it's a sin not to laugh at a pastor's joke. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's actually better if you don't laugh because it only encourages us. So, um, and I'll just say this as, as long as I'm, as long as I'm on the topic. Okay. The pulpit is like the Bermuda Triangle of jokes. Things that aren't funny for some reason are funny from the pulpit and things that uh, are funny just die sometimes. And so I, it's, it's, it's a very, very strange thing. So Hierapolis, not Lowerlopolis, but Colossae. You say, Colossae, that sounds familiar. Yes, it is the exact same Colossae to which Paul wrote the book of, of um, Colossians. So you have Hierapolis, which is north of, of Laodicea, and then you have Colossae, which is southeast of uh, Leo, Laodicea, and they shared a unique and special relationship, being just a few miles apart from one another. Now, here's why those three cities are important 
to understand and to see them as grouped together. This will be really relevant as we study this letter. You can note this on your outline. Hierapolis was famous for its relaxing, healing, hot springs. Okay? That's Hierapolis. They are famous for the, for the hot tub, for the relaxing, hot, healing springs. Colossae was most likely first established where it was because it had a rich source of clean, refreshing, cold water. Laodicea, on the other hand, had no good water supply of its own. Water had to be piped in via an aqueduct from Hierapolis. Not specifically from Hierapolis, but more from the general Hierapolis area. And as it arrived in Laodicea via these aqueducts, it arrived stale, tainted with an abundance of calcium carbonate, and it was disgustingly lukewarm. Just disgustingly lukewarm. The water was bad in Laodicea. Many considered it undrinkable. It was known to make the people sick. Now, on the other hand, as we already said, man, people went to Hierapolis to rest in the hot springs. They went to enjoy the benefit of those hot springs. Colossae, it was known for the cold, refreshing uh, uh, fountains and lakes and rivers that were were in, in abundance there. But Laodicea had nasty water. Not hot, not cold, just stale and lukewarm, tainted by too many minerals from that Hierapolis region. Now, Next, on your outline, note this. While it lacked a good water supply, Laodicea enjoyed many other benefits. It sat along a major trade route. It produced and exported fine black wool. And from this wool, they made and sold articles of clothing. And they had a famous medical school that was renowned for its treatment of eyes and ears. So, what have you got when you look at Laodicea? Well, you have a major trade route. This means lots of money and goods and people are coming in and out of Laodicea. You have fine black wool. They made lots of money selling materials and and articles of clothing. You have this famous medical school where people would come from all over the world to have their eyes and their ears treated there. They were famous in Laodicea for, for developing and using this eye salve, which was known to heal and restore irritated and damaged eyes. So you put all that together, you have a wealthy city. Laodicea was a good place to make money. It was a good place to work. It was a good place to invest and to benefit from all the business that was coming in and out of the city. And not only that, please note this on your outline, Laodicea was a very proud city, one that delighted in its wealth and self-sufficiency. Laodicea earned a reputation of being proud, of being self-sufficient, when in about A.D. 60, much of their city was destroyed and damaged by a serious earthquake that, that rocked the area. Now, remember this. Laodicea was also very loyal to Rome. <laughs> okay, Laodicea knew who buttered their bread. Laodicea was very much so in the corner of Rome, as was Hierapolis and Colossae. And as we've studied in previous weeks, so many of these other cities, they were 
fiercely loyal to Rome. And so when this earthquake happened, Rome stepped in, especially the the emperor at the time, Nero, stepped in and he offered money to all these various cities to help them rebuild. And listen, all of the cities accepted the money except for one. Laodicea said, no, thank you. We don't need the money. We don't need the help. We can rebuild on our own. We are self-sufficient. We are able to cope. We are able to recover. We don't need your money. That was Laodicea. Proud, self-sufficient Laodicea. So what have we learned? They have bad water. It's lukewarm. It'll probably make you sick. They have lots of money. They have black wool. They're famous for their medical school, for their ability to heal eyes and ears. And they're self-sufficient. They can take care of themselves. They can rebuild without anyone's help. And it's to this city, it's to this church at this time that Jesus now reveals himself in this way. Look again at verse 14. Verse 14, Jesus begins, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So, who is Jesus? What is Jesus? He's the Amen. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the beginning of God's creation. But what does this mean? Well, this leads us to our second question. Why does Jesus introduce himself this way in verse 14? Well, as you probably noticed, there are three parts to this introduction. There are three parts to this description that Jesus gives them. We'll take them quickly one by one. First, Jesus says that he's the Amen. And there's that word that Rob Blair is saying all the time, right? The amen. Now, he's not here today because he's visiting family out in Cincinnati, which is wonderful, which means some of you need to up your amen game, okay? So there you go. Someone's got to make up for Rob, okay? So why does Rob say that all the time in in the service? Why, Why do Christians say that? Why do we walk around saying amen or amen? Why do we always end our prayers saying, in Jesus' name, Amen. Why, when we're done singing the doxology, we sing an amen? Note this on your outline. The word amen is a transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning truth. Truth. Certainty. Affirmation. When you say amen, you are saying, that is true. I believe that. No cap. That's the way things really are. This aligns with the reality of who God is and what God has spoken. Jesus here says he is the Amen. He is the truth. He is the fulfillment of God's promises. He is the fixed, unchangeable reality that matters most. He is the reality of who God is now revealed to us. This is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 1.20 saying, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's right, in Christ they find their yes. And then he writes this, This is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. We can say amen to all that God promises to do, to all that God is. Why? Because Christ has come. Because He is the amen. Because He lived, He died, He rose again. He has ascended into heaven. He is coming again. He is the amen that validates and authenticates all of the promises of God for His people. Not only that, not only that, Jesus says He is, and this 
grows out of him being the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the faithful and true witness, meaning Jesus always tells the truth. He always tells it like it is. Jesus speaks from himself. He speaks from his character. He speaks from his wisdom. He speaks from his knowledge. He is the faithful and true witness, which means this. If there is anyone you should listen to, you should listen to this one. You should listen to Jesus. If there is anyone you should believe when he speaks, when he tells you something, you should believe it. He is the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness. If there is any authority or source of information in your life that you trust, it should be Christ. It should be him. He is trustworthy. He cannot accept error. He cannot stand idly by while his people believe what is wrong and false and dangerous. Jesus cannot look at self-deceived people and say, that's okay. That's okay. It's, it's not really that important. It's, it's not a big deal. No, he must address it. And he's going to deal with it as he does here with Laodicea. It's also interesting to note that later in the book of Revelation, we're going to see the same description used of Christ again. But this time, when he comes to judge, when he comes to destroy. In Revelation 19.11, we read these words, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called, here it is, faithful and true. Faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So the point is this, listen up, Laodicea. Listen up, Laodicea, the truth is speaking. The faithful witness is telling you the way things really are. The one who sees and who knows the true condition of your heart, he is going to expose it. He is going to make it plain for you. So he is the amen, he is the faithful and true witness, and Jesus says he is the beginning of God's creation. Please note this on your outline. That word, uh, that Greek word arche, translated as beginning, it does not mean that Jesus was the first thing that God created. No, it means that Jesus is, here's what the word means, the source, the origin, the creator of all that exists. That's who Christ is. He is the source. He is the origin. He is the creator. Now, why is this so important for Laodicea to know? Here's the point. You proud Laodiceans, you owe everything to Christ. You owe everything to Christ. He is the source of your life. He is the one who blesses you with jobs and with materials and with the ability to make money and to own a business. He is the one who gives you a mind and intelligence and wisdom to make medicines that can treat eyes and ears. He is the one who gives you every breath you take. In other words, we could say it this way, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So the one, the one who rules, the one who sustains all of creation, Laodicea, he is speaking to you. And what does he say to you? What does he say about you? It's not pretty. It goes south real fast. Look again at verse 15. Jesus says, 
I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here's what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. He says, it turns out you are a lot like your water. You are a lot like your water. You are not cold. You are not like the pure, clean, refreshing springs and rivers at Colossae. You are not hot. You are not like the soothing, healing, comforting hot springs at Hierapolis. You are like your water. You are lukewarm. And Jesus says, I know your works. And, and this is significant because your works reveal your heart. They do. Your words reveal your heart. They do. Your works reveal your heart. I know who you really are. You are not beneficial. You lead to sickness. That's where you lead. You, you lead to sickness. You are like murky, contaminated, stale water. And I cannot abide this as it is. I cannot tolerate this as it is. I will spit you. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, if this sounds serious, it's because it is. It is. But what does it mean to be lukewarm? What could possibly have been so bad within the church at Laodicea that Jesus says, I can't tolerate this. I won't t- tolerate this. I will spit you out. What had happened at Laodicea? This brings us to our third question. According to Jesus' words in verse 17, what does it mean to be lukewarm? So according to Jesus, what does the lukewarm person Say, how does the lukewarm person think? What is the attitude? What is the heart condition of someone who is lukewarm? I think the answer may surprise you. Look again at verse 17. Jesus says, for you say, this is what you say, Laodicea. This is how you think. Laodicea, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Noted on your outline, to be lukewarm is to no longer See any need for Christ. You have no need of Christ. To be lukewarm is to say, it is to think, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. I can take care of myself. I am self-sufficient. Thank you for the help, Jesus. Thank you for the kind advice, Jesus. I will, I got it from here. Thank you for helping me to get started on the right path, Jesus. Thank you for my ticket out of hell card, Jesus. But I'm good to go from here. I'm smart enough to make my own decisions. And, and, and don't worry, Jesus, I will do really great things for you. I will do really good things for you, but, but I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to do it my own way, according to my own wisdom. Why? Because I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. 
Brothers and sisters, the lukewarm person is not passionless. They are passionate for all the wrong things. The lukewarm person does not mean, I've lost all my zest for living. I now care about nothing. No, the lukewarm person cares about a great deal. But it isn't Christ. It isn't Christ. It isn't his grace. It isn't his wisdom. It isn't his, it isn't his will. You can be very passionate and still be very lukewarm because you are passionate about all of the wrong things. You can be lukewarm and it is to not see your need for Christ. And what worries me is that some of you right now might be thinking, is that all? Is that all that it means to be lukewarm? I thought being lukewarm was something serious. I thought being lukewarm was something really bad, like it was a serious sin. It is. It is. And Jesus uses vivid imagery and sharp words to help us see just how dangerous this condition is. To be lukewarm is to no longer see your need for Christ, which means this. I didn't put this on your outline, and I should have. It is my fault. Write this down somewhere. The word pride. To be lukewarm is to be in a state of pride. You hear it, don't you? I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Well, what's so bad about that? What's so bad about a little pride? For one thing, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. On top of that, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If you are an unbeliever, if you are not in Christ, your pride calls out for the judgment and wrath of God to be poured out upon you. And if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, your pride, when you walk in it, when you follow it, it calls out for the corrective, painful discipline to be brought into your life that you may be restored to fellowship with God. To be lukewarm is to be in a state of pride and to be lukewarm is to be blind to your true condition and to your true need. This is why Jesus says in verse 17, you say, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. And then Jesus says this, not realizing you are so ignorant. You don't know how things really are in your life and in your heart and in your mind. He says you are ignorant of your true condition that you are Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The lukewarm person is wretched. That is, they are so much more sinful than they know. They have no idea how dangerous the sin is that they play with. They have no idea how, how vile their pride is and how it is operating in their life. They are, they are pitiable. They are not to be envied. 
They're not to be envied. They're not to be imitated and emulated. They are in a dangerous condition to be avoided. They are poor. They are poor in every way that matters. I don't care what their bank account says. I don't care what kind of car they drive or the nice vacations that they take. They are wasting their life in every true sense of the way as they completely ignore Christ. They are poor. They are blind. They do not see things as they really are. They are naked. That emperor has no clothes on. He's naked. His, his pride and his sin and his arrogance, it is just boldly out there for God to see it for what it is. This is a horrible condition to be in. And the lukewarm person, he might sing songs like we sang this morning. He might sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He does not mean it. He does not mean it. His hope, his joy, his peace, his satisfaction, it is somewhere else. It is in someone else. So what should they do? What should this church do that has largely forgotten its need for Christ? And let me stop there for just a moment. Did you just hear the crazy thing that I just said? What should a church do that forgets its need for Christ? Are you... Did I... That, does, that sentence doesn't even make sense. It shouldn't make sense. Can a church... Really forget its need for Christ? Yes. It, it happened and it continues to happen all the time. It happens all the time as we look to ourselves. As we look to our wisdom and our strength and our ability that Jesus says what most generally characterizes this church in Laodicea is that they have no need for me. They are rich. They have prospered. They are self-sufficient without me. This church had, by their pride, if I can jump ahead and steal Jesus' metaphor just a little bit, they had largely closed the door to fellowship with Christ, to dependence on Christ, to dependence on the riches of His grace and His Spirit, For what? For what? What did they get in return for this? Themselves. That's what you get. When you trade Christ, that's what you're left with. Yourself. Reliance on your own money. Reliance on your own resources. Dependence on your ideas, your agenda, your preferences. Confidence in your wisdom and your ability to do things right. What should they do? What should we do, brothers and sisters, when we feel that pull into lukewarmness? As we've been saying throughout these many weeks, there's a little Ephesus in all of us. There's a little Sardis in all of us. There's a little Laodicea in all of us where we are tempted to think that we are sufficient without Christ. When we are tempted to live, to walk the lukewarm lie. What should we do? Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel you. Stop there for a moment. Wait, who is this who's talking to us? The Amen. 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, when he says, I have some advice for you. I counsel you to do this. What should our response be? I am ready. Like, bring it on. Like, I will do this. This is what I should do. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. So be zealous. Be zealous and repent. The fourth question is this. What incredibly ironic counsel does Jesus give to this church? Strangely enough, strangely enough, Jesus tells these people who, who think they have everything to come and to buy what they think they have but don't from him. That seems crazy. And on top of that, how do you buy something from Jesus? How do you buy? Jesus says, come and, and buy. Buy from me. Jesus, do you take MasterCard? Do you take Visa? Are you like Dave Ramsey? You only take debit cards? I hope, I hope you're not like a cash-only person. No one carries cash. What is going on here? Don't miss the point. It's on your outline. Here it is. Fill in the blank. Jesus tells these rich satisfied, self-sufficient people that they need what only he can give. What only he can give. That is the point. That is the point. Only Jesus can give true riches. Only Jesus can give the gift of his life, the gift of his righteousness. Only Jesus can bless and reward his people with a abiding joy that will never end. Only Jesus can cleanse can cleanse us of our pride and can cover our shame. Only Jesus can open our eyes and allow us to see things as they really are. Now, you may hear that and I hear that and I say, well, that's all well and good. But still, the question is, how do you buy something from Jesus? What does Jesus want from me? What do I contribute to this transaction? So we think about the answer to this question Listen to a few verses from Isaiah 55 when God said something very similar, when God used some similar imagery. God says in Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then just a few verses later, God says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. What do you contribute to this transaction? What do you bring to the equation? Your need. 
your need, your desperate, humble need for Christ and for his grace. And brothers and sisters, listen, this is why this is why Jesus says at the end of verse 19. So be zealous and repent. That's it. That's what you that's what you need to do. Be zealous and repent, meaning this come quickly. Don't wait. Be zealous. Come quickly to the one who freely gives of his righteousness, who freely gives to those who call on him. Come passionately to the one. Come passionately to the one who warmly welcomes everyone that comes to him in faith. Come eagerly to the one who does not need your money. Jesus does not need your money. Jesus does not need your money, but he wants to freely Pour out His grace and His Spirit and His life into your life. And listen to this. Jesus loves you enough to discipline you. That's what He says in the text. He says, those whom I love, I discipline. He loves you enough to call you out on your self-sufficiency and to call you back to Himself that you may know true life and true riches in Him. Come joyfully to the One, listen, who is both the light by which we see, and He is the one that we need to see. He is both. He is the light by which we see. He is the one we need to see. So yes, come by from Him. Come to Him and experience the free riches of His grace. And this is why this letter ends with all of these pictures, with this picture of a door and knocking and a meal being shared and a throne with more than one person sitting on it. Look again at verse 20. Jesus says, behold, which means stand amazed. Look at this. Consider this. Be amazed at this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So our final question, what's the deal? with the door and the knocking and the meal and the really big throne. Note this on your outline. This is a picture. This is a promise of unending, glory-filled fellowship, communion, relationship with Jesus. The sad truth is the lukewarm person who sees no need for Jesus, he has effectively closed the door on fellowship and intimacy with Christ. He has no need of Jesus. The door is closed. He is fine on his own, so he thinks. But for all who open the door, for for the church who is zealous and repents, for all who come to buy what they need from Jesus, what will they find? How will Jesus respond to them? What will be his attitude, his disposition towards them? Will he be cold, reluctant, resentful, rude? Not hardly. Jesus says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, listen, this meal that is being described here in the Greek, it is the evening meal. It is the last 
meal of the day, which was a prolonged meal. It was, oh, what a meal it is. It is, it is that long meal that has lots of courses and lots of appetizers and, and lots of varieties of dishes and desserts to pick from. It is a long meal, which the whole point of the length of it is to encourage fellowship and intimacy and conversation and sharing. This is the picture that Jesus wants us to have here. With Jesus, there is communion and fellowship with Him for those who seek Him. And not only that, Jesus says in verse 21 that the one who conquers, the one who conquers, and remember in context, conquering means the one who opens the door, the one who is zealous and repents. The one who comes to buy what only Jesus can provide. The one who conquers, Jesus says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Now you might be thinking, that sounds like a really big throne. You have no idea. But come on, Jesus. I mean, be realistic for just for just a little bit. I mean, how many people can you really fit on your throne? How many people can actually fit on this throne of yours? The answer is this. All who conquer in Christ will be seated with him in fellowship and glory. All who overcome by his grace will rule with him in glory. And I think you would have to admit that this is quite a change from being spit out of Jesus's mouth to dining with Him and eating with Him and sitting with Him on His throne. Can you imagine such a thing? Who gets to sit on the King's throne? How dare you go sit on the King's throne? You can't do that unless you're invited, unless you're welcomed, unless you're one of the King's kids. And you are welcome to come and to join in his joy and in his kingship and in his glory. And that is exactly the picture that we are being given here today. And so, brothers and sisters, I love it that we are celebrating the Lord's Supper today. Do you want to know why? The Lord's Supper is a rejection of lukewarmness. The Lord's Supper is a rejection of self-sufficiency. As we come to the Lord's Supper, as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are confessing our continual need of Christ and for Christ. We are saying that we, again, we confess and we recognize our need for His life and for His grace. We remember, we remember that we put lukewarmness to death by continually seeing our need. Listen, to abide in Christ. To abide in Christ. Um, if, you, if you have a Bible, this isn't on your outline. I know this is extra last minute. Just roll with me. If you have a Bible, turn to John 15 for, for just a moment. Um, I think if I could prescribe a passage for the lukewarm individual after reading Revelation 3, I would encourage John 15. John 15, if you, if you are, well, let me back up. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're like, nope, I, I have no need of Christ. I've never trusted in him. I don't recognize my need for him at all, friend. You are in such peril. You need Christ. You need to humbly confess 
your sin, your wickedness. You need to find life and forgiveness in Jesus. And if you have questions about that, we'd love to meet with you, to talk with you, to pray with you about these things. But if you are here today and and you're like, I know Christ, but I also know how self-sufficient I can be and how easily I can drift into lukewarmness, I call you to John 15. After hearing about Jesus' gracious invitation and the danger of lukewarmness, look at what Jesus says in John 15.4. John 15.4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do no thing. You can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, He is thrown away. Or if I can use our imagery from Revelation 3, He is spit out of the mouth of Christ like a branch and withers. And the the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7, If you abide in Me and My words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And do you remember what Jesus talked about? He says, I have conquered. I have sat with my father on his throne. And now you come and sit with me on my throne. This is this love relationship that we are called into. And then verse 10 or at the end of verse 9, he tells us so plainly, abide in my love. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Your joy is at stake this morning, as we consider what Christ has said, how we celebrate Him and respond to Him and depend upon Him. So I'm going to pray, and then music will play just for a few minutes. Use that time to pray, to confess your need to Christ. Come to one of the tables. Elders will be at the table. If you want to talk or pray with someone, you can do that now or at the end of the service. But we'll partake of the elements together once everyone has had a moment. But let's pray and ask God to reveal, to show us where we need to grow and to change. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we delight to read your word this morning, even though it is a hard word that we read about our temptation to wander away into pride and self-sufficiency. God, how I pray that you will reveal that, how and when we are guilty of it. God, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see you as you are, that we would see ourselves for who we are, that we would respond and faith, and joy, and repentance before you. God, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to celebrate your table, to eat the bread and the cup, to express our worship, our love, our treasuring of Christ. May you be honored in this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.